0: If you like what you're hearing on reimagining Soviet Georgia, then please, please, please visit patreon.com slash reimaginingsovietgeorgia and consider becoming a patron. Your monthly donations of only 5 or $10 will not only help us maintain our podcast and continue producing the content that we do, but will also help us expand the scope of the project. We have Goals and dreams of producing full-length audio documentaries, more original research, and translating oral histories, but we need your help. So please visit patreon.com slash reimaginingsovietgeorgia. Any amount helps. And without further ado... My name is Brian Gigantino, and welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. The long-standing political crisis between Georgia and Abkhazia has many causes and consequences. One of them is the historical normalization in Georgia of the idea that Abkhazia and Abkhazians do not historically exist and therefore have no legitimate political agency. This idea has a clear intellectual and political continuity. In 1956, Georgian literary historian Pavel Ingorokva popularized the idea that the Abkhaz were not indigenous to Abkhazia. In 1991, Georgia's first post-Soviet president, Zviad Gamsakhurdia publicly claimed that the Abkhaz nation didn't exist. Today, it is state policy in Georgia that 20% of the country, including Abkhazia, is occupied by Russia, directly insinuating that Abkhazian independence and national claims are merely the propagandistic veneer covering up what is in fact Russian occupation. But ideas alone can never explain everything. The war between Georgia and Abkhazia in 1992 to 1993, as the USSR was collapsing, itself exploded as an outgrowth of historical grievances, demographic shifts, access to and control over resources, simmering intercommunal tensions, particular forms of national mobilization, and how the disintegration of the USSR incentivized opportunistic elites to weaponize nationalism. All of this culminating in the displacement, death, and social dismemberment of both Abkhaz and Georgians fueling and institutionalizing nationalist intransigence on both sides. The 2008 Russo-Georgian War and the recognition of Abkhaz independence by Russia that year further reinforced mutual distrust and enmity. But the political erasure of Abkhaz people as a legitimate national community in Georgia today has a number of consequences a past shared life between Georgians and Abkhaz, in ethnically mixed villages and families, in universities and workplaces, gets discursively subsumed by ethno-national absolutes. Further, the causes and realities of the Abkhaz-Georgian War in the 1990s and the reignition of tensions, and why Abkhaz people mobilized, or in many cases did not mobilize to fight, are explained away as merely Russia's doing. To explore all this and more, On today's episode, Sopo Japaridze and I welcome Anastasia Shesterinina to discuss her excellent new book, Mobilizing an Uncertainty, Collective Identities and War in Abkhazia, which, through hundreds of interviews and extensive field research, explains how and why Abkhaz did or did not mobilize to fight in the war with Georgia in the early 1990s. And out of many normal Abkhaz, the war itself was entirely unexpected and their own collective identities in the lead-up, during, and after the war, wholly uncertain. okay anastasi thank you so much for coming on to reimagining soviet georgia so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure and such a great initiative. I've been impressed by other episodes and it's just um, great to be here. Um, so, I am currently a lecturer or assistant professor at the University of uh, Sheffield in the Department of Politics and International Relations, where I've been for some time. And um, as many of you will now know after this episode, I've been working on the Georgian Abkhaz War of 1992 93, APAS mobilization for this war um, for over a decade now, with the book Mobilizing in Uncertainty coming out um, in 2021. And what motivated this research is in part my background, I guess. I um, was born and grew up in Odessa. And of course, as a, as, a, as a child actually I remember the distress that my family had um, you know watching the mobilizations that happened as the Soviet Union collapsed and thereafter um, watching the the news of sometimes highly violent events um, sometimes highly positive outcomes and so when I started my PhD I knew I needed to, kind of put that interest from the past um, into my work, but it only with time that um, the questions that I started asking emerged, uh, particularly the question on the AAPAS mobilization, which came to fascinate fascinate me over time. Um, And this is what I dedicated the first kind of part of my scholarship to uh, as a political scientist, as a scholar of comparative politics and international relations, but also as someone who's really interested in um, qualitative methods in fieldwork research. You
0: know, I had the pleasure of reading your book, but could you just tell people what is your book about mobilizing uncertainty?
1: And
2: I'm sorry, and what does it mean, mobilizing? It's also very important to uh, to be clear on what that means.
1: Yes, of course. So when I started this research, I became puzzled by the participation of a relatively small group, comparatively in terms of just civil wars around the world, in a war against um, a stronger state opponent. So not only were the Abhas at a disadvantage in manpower and arms when the Georgian Abhas war began uh, in 1992, but also intergroup clashes before the war in Abhasia uh, demonstrated the dominance of the Georgian group and the repressive capacity of the Georgian state to crash Abhas dissent. The 93,000 Abhas did not stand a chance before the 240,000 Georgians in Abhazia and a 5 million strong Georgia. Of course, Georgia inher- inherited a large share of Soviet weapons in the South Caucasus, whereas the Abhas did not have a comparable access to arms um, at the former you know, Soviet military base in Gudauta. Um, foreign fighters and armaments from Russia, of course, strengthened the Abhas force in the course of the war. But this support cannot explain the mobilization at the war's onset when Georgian forces immediately captured most of the territory of Apazia and, you know, immediate casualties were observed also on the Abkhaz side. So given this disadvantage in manpower and arms and the precedent of intergroup clashes when at the time in 1989, only Soviet troops could stop the violence, mobilization in the Abhas case in general from a political science perspective should not have been expected. And this is something that Mark Bisinger discusses in his book on on mobilization, suggesting that, you know, the Abhas participation, the, the joining of the Abhas side in the war, it's actually... It's an outlier, and the broader APAS mobilization is an outlier for those reasons. Yet, we know that at least 1,000 APAS mobilized at the war's onset, and up to 13% of the population did so in the course of the war. So turning to your question of, of, the mobil, of mobilization itself... You know, what we saw is some people gathered hunting rifles that they stored in their homes, even though weapons were mainly collected from the population before the war. Um, others got armed at the Soviet military base, some purchasing weapons, others stealing weapons, others were just given weapons. So there was a complex story there as well. Yet others joined mobilization unarmed, often with sticks. You have this video footage of uh, past men collecting uh, <laughs> metal rods and and sticks and and joining that way in groups however at the same time of course not the whole population um, stood up on august 14th 15 1992 some hid in apazia others fled to nearby russia or in other cases even defected to the georgian side very rarely so i wanted to understand this variation and this is what the book became about. Um, and of course, what became clear um, early in my research was that this case did not fit neatly with existing approaches to mobilization. So the usual approaches, the dominant approaches that we have, these provided the you know historical, social, structural context of mobilization in Apazia. but they did not explain the range of mobilization decisions that I charted. You know, the fact that some did join the APAS effort, others hid, others fled, or or even defected. And so these kind of relative deprivation, you know, arguments about grievances, the, the usual arguments about grievances, about collective memory, and, um, you know, other collective action approaches that suggest that people join the fighting uh, as a result of social pressures um, or as a result of uh, potential future repercussions within their communities, these, these kind of general approaches, they didn't account why some Abhas mobilized, but others did not despite shared grievances that App has held, which, of course, we'll discuss, um, despite the social pressures in this traditional kind of strong community. Um, On the other hand, the arguments um, that that I call security seeking, the strategic kind of logic, which suggests that, you know, people join the fighting actually because that might provide them with better security, uh, or people get incentivized with economic incentives, for instance. Those were just not available at the war's onset um, for the Apas. In the course of, of the war, perhaps, but at the war's onset, uh, not so much. So these explanations, these kinds of security-seeking arguments, they tell us why some Apas hid, maybe fled or defected, but they struggle with those who joined. So the Abhas force really could not offer the skills or resources to participants that could increase their security at the war's onset. And most importantly, I think, um, these approaches kind of start from the assumptions that I ended up challenging. The assumption that people know the risks that are involved in mobilization and joining the fighting. And usually these kinds of explanations, they expect people to make these, you know, cost benefit calculations based on the risks that they face. But most people who spoke with me in Apazia suggested that these risks were not well understood at all when the Georgian forces entered Abhazia in August 1992. Instead people characterized the war's en- onset as a moment of intense uncertainty. So what that meant to me was that the Georgian advance on that you know, sunny day in August really ruptured everyday life in Abkhazia. So people would tell me tanks entered all of a sudden. It was like a thunder in the middle of a sunny day. Um, I was making jam. One story stood out to me. I was making jam, and my daughter ran into my house and said the war started. And the woman responded, Well, what war? With whom? So this basically posed with kind of unprecedented urgency, unprecedented because 1989 was different. Um, there was kind of a logic behind it um, that we can, again, go in in detail uh, later in our conversation. But here, there was kind of unprecedented urgency that surrounded really important questions and dilemmas. Was this a war in the first place? You know, who was threatened by whom and to what extent? How to act in response? And so in the end, as I kind of moved through the research, the, the question that ended up motivating this book in particular became how ordinary people navigate uncertainty to make these different mobilization decisions in civil war.
0: You started kind of going into it, but one of the first questions I had was, when I you know, read your book, you've got make the, the assertion that there's this academic literature, there's these theoretical frameworks, and then you go to Abkhazia and you start talking to people and doing interviews and their real lived experiences, how they understand and more importantly remember the situation sort of contradict these um, you know, formal, quote-unquote, academic narratives. And I just want to know a little bit more about your experience of interviewing people and using um, what people are telling you as a basis for understanding how the situation uh, happened? And what were some of the kind of consistent narratives or surprising narratives that you heard from Abha's people?
1: Oh, absolutely. What a great question. It's probably also one of my favorite topics of conversation, because I'm really interested in methods in general in research methods. And so, you know, when I just started this research as a PhD student, um, I actually was surprised from the outset, because as a PhD student, I prepared this research design um, that asked a whole other question, that asked a question about post-war violence in the case, you know, particularly what was happening along the Georgian Abbas administrative border for so long, including the Six-Day War of 1998, including the, the hostilities of 2008. That's what I wanted to understand at the beginning. And that was actually, at the time, considered to be a really hot topic of research. So I really wanted to kind of combine this, you know, academic interest with what would be a case that we know so little about. And so I actually started with preliminary research where I started asking these questions and people did not want to talk to me about post-war violence at all. This was just not a topic of conversation that I could get at. On the other hand, what I learned in early on was that there was something else going on that was just so interesting, as you mentioned, and that immediately drew my attention and that I started having conversations uh, with people about, which was, you know, this moment of, of the fighting of 1992-93 itself. And actually, I, I went back home to Vancouver. I'm a Canadian. I moved to Canada quite some time ago. My, my whole family did. And I studied at the University of British Columbia and I, I shared this with my supervision team and I said, well, you know, it's, it's just not working. The the, the 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 prospectus that I defended, it's just not going to work. And so I sat down and I completely redesigned the study. And to be honest, I'm just so grateful that, that for that opportunity because I actually think that what emerged was just so much more interesting. And so what ended up happening was I set up this kind of um, design to look at the different subnational areas within the territory of Abkhazia based on at the time, the kind of the dominant theory of civil war that says that territorial control matters and that, you know, people will act differently based on who controls the territory. So I selected um, Pitsunda, Gudauta, Suhumi, or Suhum, and further uh, locales toward the east to make sure that I understand maybe people reacted differently based on whether they were closer to the. Georgian app has administrative border, whether they were closer to Russia, you know, whether these kinds of uh, opportunities to escape mattered. And what I learned interviewing people in these different locales, and of course in, in, in the area around Gudauta where the app has maintained control throughout the war. So I thought, okay, maybe there's something different going on in these across the territory where people would just be following the strategic logic. And what I started realizing was that, first of all, the questions that I was asking that would get me to these kind of dominant theories, to grievances, to strategic uh, kind of structure, whether those things impacted how people decided to participate in the war or not, they kind of were present across the board, but people made really different decisions and sometimes highly surprising. So, the first surprise I mentioned already that I actually did not know how to deal with that piece of information. So, I would ask questions about um, life histories of individuals to try and, you know, situate them politically, socially, historically. Um, and and in other ways within the kind of the broader georgian-abbas conflict and what i heard over and over and over again was that well i we we i didn't i was shocked when when the war started i had no idea whether it was a war like that was the first big surprise and that's almost um the core of the kind of theoretical innovation in this book had i brushed off this set of insights that in interview, after interview, people would tell me, with the exception of very few who expected the war. Of course, that was important as well. I needed to seek both confirming and disconfirming evidence. And there were some people who did kind of say that they prepared for the war, but others suggested that they thought they were just crazy. What kind of a war? There can't be a war. You know, we're such an integrated society, even though, yes, we we had this Polarization after 1989. We had this kind of the appearance of armed groups, which I call militarization. But then there was a, this lull, like nothing was going on. So it was relatively calm. So, where would the war come from, you know? So, that was one big surprise. The other big surprise was that many people that we would expect to mobilize academically, so for instance, highly politicized individuals, so individuals who participated in prior Abhaz mobilization, many of them actually did not join the Abhaz effort during the war. And that was incredibly surprising because a whole tradition in the social movements literature in particular suggests that people are likely to join these kind of um, what what is assumed to be high risk and and, understood as such uh, events because of by virtue of their prior participation. But what I learned was that actually, in the end, particularly convinced by families and friends of their own uh, safety consideration, highly, some highly politicized individuals actually left and fled. So that was another. Of course, not all. It's just some. So there was variation, and that was that was another big surprise that motivated me to just figure out how is it that people went from this confusion and shock um, on August fourteenth, fifteenth, to this really sometimes surprising range of mobilization decisions. So let me tell you a couple of words just about the interview process itself um, that I used to get at these questions. So from the outset, I realized that, you know, in order for me to get at these difficult questions about 1992-93, I needed to understand a much bigger picture about every individual's life story. So, I couldn't just start at the moment of the fighting. I needed to understand how people related to this broader conflict from their childhood on, even from the stories that grandparents told them on, and all the way to the post war period. Why? Because, of course, we know that post war loyalties and potential affiliations, the ways in which memories transform through time, especially as a result of post-war processes, might have impacted what I would hear from people. So I selected um, those individuals who fought and did not participate in the fighting um, across the different locales that I was interested in, across the territory of apazia But I also made sure that I recruited participants in this research with really distinct pre-war and post-war backgrounds. This was very important. So those people who participated in pre-war Abha's mobilization or who did not, those people who were part of the Soviet state apparatus and those who did not, which of course would have shaped how they related to the conflict before the war. And in terms of the post-war period, those people who um Kind of were affiliated in one way or another with the de facto APA state, with the government itself, who were kind of positive about it, and those who were not. So, in a nutshell, and through these kind of life history um, conversations that I had with people, which lasted from one to six hours, you know, it's, it's sometimes they were just really in depth conversations about people's lives. I learned that these kind of background differences also did not really matter to the specific process that people underwent when the fighting started in 1992. So that was kind of another surprising element as well. And of course, I could not just leave it at that. Um, Knowing the kind of issues of memory that I mentioned already, knowing that, you know, sometimes people would want to perhaps present their story in a particular light. I used a a number of um, techniques that we have developed as a community of scholars in political science and sociology, drawing on neuroscience research sometimes. And I asked questions that... Um, charted in detail individual sequences of actions, particularly o- over the first four days of the war, from August 14th until the 18th, but also broader narrative questions. So what we know is that traumatic events are, are remembered quite well in terms of the sequences of events, but perhaps not in terms of the kind of the ideas that underlined those sequences. So I kind of trusted the the sequences of events more almost, and then kind of charted individual trajectories um, for each single individual, and then kind of aggregated them into bigger stories that I then told. But I also sought um, comparable interviews from before. So those interviews that were collected by journalists, psychologists at the time of the war and midway between the war and my research. So this is also drawing on anthropological tradition. So we, we've we got the great James Scott who kind of taught us that this is, if we can find those alternative kind of archives, we should, because that'll help us address issues of memory. And of course, I present my uh, research in a highly de-identified, anonymized way to make sure that there's no harm in in the way to participants oh, on on all sides, of course, I not only interviewed um those individuals on the Abha side, I also interviewed displaced Georg- Georgians I interviewed Georgian academics and et etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So all of those are presented in a highly anonymized way, but what was important was that I knew that I actually interviewed some of the same individuals that were present within the archives that I collected as well. so I could kind of, even a little bit more, increase the confidence of what I was learning from my interviews by checking whether these people said the same things before. And lastly, of course, I drew on a range of other materials from news sources, to um, archival work that was done by historians on, on all sides, <laughs> on the Abbas Georgian, Russian side. So um, various kind of secondary literature to make sure that I kind of, we, we know again in, in political science research that these different forms of collecting data, they illuminate the question in a distinct way. So sometimes they present a part of the puzzle that other materials would not. So for instance, the Soviet archives would tell me about uh, kind of the police state perspective on on what was going on. And, And this, of course, I couldn't gather from the interviews. So combined, all of these different sources helped me kind of grow more and more confident in the story that emerged of you know how is it with the story the, the, the mechanism that I call collective threat f- framing of how these socio historical processes, you know, what people experienced before the war played into how they understood the moment of the war's onset. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by
2: everything you've told me so far, especially methodology, because I also think it's so important. And one of the things we aim to do with this podcast and on oral history project, we also have an oral history component that we've been collecting stories, um, is to learn better methodology. And we also, you know, are in beginning stages. And so we would actually love for you to maybe off, offline as well, like help us develop better methodologies ourselves um so we can have a a, because we're trying to you know reimagine soviet georgia and one of the ways is like figure out how people actually felt about the soviet union and not what the dominant discourse really is which often is very contradictory if not completely opposite of what people feel about it um and so that's like another way that we're trying to figure out how to how to present that um so maybe you can totally help us with that <laughs> uh, but yeah i'm like fascinated listening to you it's so much more thorough and like so painstakingly like done the way you've been discussing it and to hear most how people write about anything is so lazy now comparatively right so like with like this such a very let's say like you know superficial way people mostly interact especially around wars or you know any kind of events it's incredibly superficial you know i'm also i'm guilty of also doing that as well but i'm also very much into constantly trying to figure out what's really happening and not what we like to think is happening um or what people have said so far very important people so thank you so much for that little um methodology and hopefully we can talk more about it later as well
1: Thank you so much. Could I then add perhaps one element that I didn't go into, but that was just absolutely fascinating. So, of course, um, to, to, to political scientists, it, it would probably be clear that I'm an interpretivist. So I, I find that it is very important to also uh, probe my own position and the ways in which I experienced what was going on during the field work. So there was this one element that I that I realized was happening, but I had no idea what to do with that piece of observation. Um, so in some inter, when I arrived in Abhazia I actually, I, of course, had read everything I could lay my hands on uh, with regard to 1992-93, but also kind of the broader kind of scholarship on the Georgian Abas conflict. And I actually... F- found that I myself was biased. I myself had a range of stereotypes and a kind of a very monotone almost position with regard to the APAS because of the displacement of of the Georgian population, because of the inability of people to come back to their homes. So I was, I I, I don't want to say negative because that doesn't capture it, but I had a very strong set of ideas um, coming into the field. And what I learned from the first really kind of in-depth conversations with people was that I started to develop um, deep empathy because of learning about the dilemmas that people had. Because of learning that you know, not everything was so black and white and white, because of learning just how deep some of the relationships were between people before the war and and you know, even questions of regret after the war. But I also realized that something else was happening in some conversations, in some interviews, I managed to develop this empathy, which allowed me to listen closely, which allowed me to ask questions freely, which also clearly resonated with with people. And people would tell me perhaps something that otherwise they wouldn't. And and we had this um, kind of quite open conversation where I noticed that in most interviews um, that were marked by this kind of empathy, people actually very often started with the dominant narrative on the war. But then as we moved to the conversation, they kind of shifted into these more complex topics. And yet in other cases, I was actually afraid. I experienced really deep fear for all kinds of reasons. And we can talk about that. And and I I could not ask those follow-up probes. I could not ask, you know, some questions that were more in-depth perhaps and and we never moved away from the dominant narrative i learned later by kind of coding the interviews. I, I also left a lot of notes for myself for each interview where, where I discussed these, what Lian Fuji calls metadata, you know, the silences, the gestures, my own kind of feelings and emotions in the context of the interview. And I learned later that I was actually afraid of those people who continued uh, participating in the hostilities on, along the Georgian administrative border at the time. So there was clearly kind of my own reaction, which helped me actually better understand the context, the security context in post-war Abhazia and those who participated in the distant war with whom I could kind of, you know, probe these questions of dilemmas of of, um, the more kind of complex questions I did not fear them and so in the end I also kind of made a distinction between those kinds of interviews those that that remained on the surface like you said those that where we could not move past the dominant narratives past the kind of more superficial topics um, the the questions of pride masculinity that, that, that came out a lot in those interviews and they never moved past that I actually don't trust them as much so I don't rely on them as much so also, there was kind of a process of sifting within the, the, the materials that I collected based on this kind of reflection on my own emotional state in the, in the interview and what that meant for how the interview unfolded. So I think that was also very important to, to mention.
2: I've translated a lot of oral histories from 2008 Ossetian War into English. And so I also learned a lot just translating those. I was like kind of shocked and often it was like that it was a lot about their farm life um things that they owned like sheep this that and what was taken from them and then they were like making jam or they were making something um best friends with the neighbors don't understand what happened and they often blame outside agitators that they're the ones that we have nothing to do with those satins and georgians were great it's these outsiders, these Georgians came in, instigators, and they, they are the ones at fault. It's nothing to do with the ethnicities, but these sort of intrigan, right? Like these, like, instigators that from some, sometimes from both sides, but mostly they blame a lot of the Georgian, including Georgians also, like um, coming from Tbilisi, you know? And doing these like rallies of like hate filled rallies or agi- agitated them. Um, and so that was actually, I was also very like um, shocking for me how much I thought I would hear a lot of blaming Russia and Ossetians or whatever. And that really wasn't present at all. It was a lot of, these are just like a, a few bad apples, you know, nothing to do with us. We had such a great relationship always greatest neighbors so that was very very interesting um and what's what we hear on you know the media it's always so much more um black and white always and how you know the abkhazians or Ossetians are not even really humanized in the same way um it's also like this thing, like how Georgia is actually the underdog, right? Like you were talking about Abkhazians mobilizing was such a crazy thing to do because there's so very few of them. Georgians captured everything. But in Georgian context, it's like, well, they had Russia all along. We're the underdogs, you know? And so, I don't know, maybe you can talk about that as well.
1: So what you said immediately at the beginning about how, you know, it wasn't about local Georgians at all. I heard that over and over again, but also in a in a in a broader context. So let me start with um, I pulled out a quote here that that's really reflective of what you were saying. So this is a quote from an interview. Local Georgians living here were never hostile. Then, from the outside, it was planted that quote unquote, the app has our visitors who took our land, of course, the one of the theories that existed on who belongs to the land. And finally, the quote says, Georgian youth were educated on that. So indeed, there was this kind of perception that it was planted from from the outside, like probably many stories that you heard. But as I dug deeper, there was more going on there. So Basically, of course, if we think about this broader history, where do we even start? You know, that was my big question. But where do, where do I start? Where do I, you know, go back? How far do I go back in in time? And I realized that we can't quite start this story unless we go all the way back to the period of the Russian Empire, and there, one particular element kind of forms the foundation of what we're seeing later down the road. And that particular historical moment is the moment of Mahajerstvo, the displacement of the Apas, especially those who participated in the uprisings against the Russian Empire elsewhere. To Turkey etc and kind of the depopulation of the Abazz land. Of course some of those displaced were able to come back but they they were not able to come back quite often to the cities and the question of uh, repopulation of apazia emerges in that context of course. and there were attempts to repopulate other groups but the, the, the terrain as, as you know is incredibly challenging. It is really challenging without experience of working on that land to populate that land. So, of course, some of the first kind of repopulations that worked where people didn't, you know, leave were from particularly Mingrelia and then broader kind of Georgia. So that's where the story almost kind of starts, uh, in my view, with these demographic processes, because, of course, we can't quite understand the dynamics um, of, of demographic change and how people related to one another without figuring that out. Of course, there are centuries of, of historical processes going beyond that, but I start there because of the kind of centrality of demographic change um, to what we to what we were seeing then in the in the nineties and before and, and further down.
0: And what about the Soviet period in particular?
1: The demographic changes in the early Soviet period, of course, were part of uh, some of the Soviet policies, which were motivated, including by economic reasons and and other reasons. But from the perspective of the Abhas, what I hear is that when this kind of repopulation was taking place during the early Soviet decades, people realized that many um, individuals from, and families, of course, from Mingrelia, for instance, were relocated forcefully. And they didn't have much when they arrived. And so this is where some of the kind of core of the narrative of the distinction between local Georgians and Georgians from outside, from from Georgia proper, from Belisi, like we discussed, uh, kind of originates in the collective memory of the Abhas. And so what I heard over and over again was that when when Georgians were relocated, for instance, to the Abhas villages, it was... um, a situation where the Abhaz norms of neighborly solidarity could be kind of applied in this new way where, you know, people, uh, sh- locals shared the last piece of mamaliga, the cornmeal porridge. Um, they kind of understood that um, those who were moving to Abhazia, they they really didn't have anything. And so what you see going from there is that This kind of idea that as neighbors, as, you know, people, people were just people, they were friends on an everyday level. And Neighborhood solidarity was, of course, not just limited to the time of resettlement, but is reported across the Soviet decades. You know, people say that as neighbors, we were like closest relatives. And of course, this is also supported by the fact that there were so many intermarriages um, in, in the Soviet period. And so, what you hear is we lived together uh, as one family. Whether Georgian or Abhaz wedding, we all went, and this I hear actually both from the Abhaz participants in my research and those Georgians displaced by the war. So that was an important uh, kind of component for me to to figure out whether this was just one-sided perception or no. And so those friendly intergroup relations, they also um were were characteristic of other uh, settings, so employment, education settings, which brought people from different backgrounds together. And so I heard from people we had this university where the Abhas, Georgians, Russians all studied together. We were such good friends, we worked together. But there was an undercurrent, a political undercurrent shaped by certain political issues, the quote unquote AAPHAS question, which structured these relationships in a way so some topics were conversational taboos and one of those topics was was the the abhazias political status which of course is perceived uh, by the Abhas as having changed from when Abhasia entered the Soviet Union in 1921 as a Soviet Socialist Republic with that particular title and then was merged into the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic as its autonomy, so in 1931. And that is a really painful memory for the Abhas, but that kind of a, uh, as an issue almost could not be discussed if you wanted to maintain those relationships of friendship So there were conversational taboos which made, in a way, those friendship relationships go only so far. In the sense that I heard over and over again that issues that touched us separated us. Issues that we were concerned with, we couldn't really discuss with our Georgian friends. And that is very important because, of course, as a result, the situation of friendship was uh mm, kind of threatened all the time so whenever those issues were raised i heard of arguments uh between friends acquaintances strangers and even families so that's that's i think very important so indeed we see a story of really in-depth friendships but they were also conditional on on some topics of conversation, on some forms of expression, um, et cetera. There were also um, other reflections of what I call everyday confrontation. So not only arguments as a result of, you know, raising the issues, quote unquote, the Abhas question uh, and other uh, questions that were taboo, such as jokes, insults, and bending of customs. So you hear a lot of this kind of suppressed tension that came out through jokes. Um, for instance, saying, oh, he's such a great person, but he's Abhaz," or, oh, he's such a great person, but he's jo- Georgian. So of course, in those kinds of jokes, you see this more complex story, even with local Georgians, those, those resident to Abhazia. And, um, More so, the bending of customs, I think, was very important. So at some point, our neighbors stopped inviting us to their weddings. And that was just such a dramatic um, kind of uh, expression of this everyday confrontation that I also observed. Over time, what you see is that kind of everyday confrontation also um, spilled into low level violence. So you had kind of a situation where there were public expressions of animosity, there were Lots of brawls and bars. Somebody would start singing a song in one or the other language and then another group would um, say that why are you singing a song in Abhaz or why are you singing a song in in, in Abhazian or in Georgian and a brawl would start. This kind of a story came out quite, quite uh, consistently. People were disrespectful in uh, uh, kind of different settings. This is something that I heard over and over again. To the extent that with the openings that were created from the 60s and then thereafter, particularly in the 80s with Perestroika, what you see is that um, some respondents start saying that this becomes normalized. This everyday confrontation becomes normalized to the extent that if mothers, they were respondents would, would tell me were afraid of anything is that they would let their child go somewhere and then there would be a group of uh, people from another background and and a clash would happen. So, there was a lot of kind of their work undercurrents. And there was also a distinction that uh, respondents in Abkhazia drew between those Georgians who were reloc- relocated so repopulation that took place in the early decades of the Soviet Union, those who were populating formerly Abkhaz villages or villages near the Abkhaz villages, and those who moved particularly later to the cities. So the perception was that even within the local Georgian population there was this difference where, you know, Georgians who lived there forever since the early decades of the Soviet Union in particular. So we're talking about specifically here, the relocated population. They knew us, respondents would tell me, but you know, those who were in the cities, they didn't really have the same kinds of ties with us. So they, they were the ones in a way who were suggested to have joined Georgian mobilization first. And so there was also not only this kind of internal, external, so insider outsider, uh, relationship that you mentioned, but also there were layers uh, within within uh, the Georgian population of Abkhazia that respondents um, mentioned. And so these kinds of questions, the questions of everyday confrontation, the questions of um, kind of translation of historical memory of the changing of the Abhas status, the closing of Abhas school at some points, the prohibition of Abhas language, the changing of Abhas language from, you know, various alphabets. the kind of inability to find employment if you were has, of course especially in the early decades because of course we know that later down the road particularly as a result of um, has mobilization during the Soviet period there was a reverse trend um, of what uh, Nino Gemuklidze calls Abhazianization. So where, as a result of being a titular group, there were certain kind of guarantees that the Abhaz would be represented in employment settings, in education settings, et cetera. So those changes in the trends, of course, mattered, but the historical collective memory was there, underlying, underlying um, some of the instances of other kinds of mobilization that we saw, uh, again, going back to the question that you asked before, which I call political contention and violent opposition. So we discussed a little bit everyday confrontation, right? Those kind of derogatory language use, the jokes, the insults, the customs, the arguments over taboo questions. But that was not the extent of the story. Of course, there was um, a strong set of Political participation from elite level to ordinary people's levels. We saw that particularly with two sets of kind of repertoires that were dominant the writing of Abha's letters, the very kind of famous repertoire on the Abha side, and the public gatherings that often went hand in hand. And then, of course, demonstrations, clashes and strikes. So let me walk just very briefly, just to give some context of mobilization. And by the way, I keep returning to this term. Let me just kind of once and for all say how I define it. <laughs> I find that mobilization needs to be understood as a process of both organization of and participation in collective action. So it's not just a decision to fight or not. It is a much broader story. And that's why I've started kind of unpacking from everyday kind of participation in the conflict and how that affects an individual to these other forms of political contention and violent opposition to which I'm I'm turning now. So in terms of Abha's letters, we know, of course, that the Abha's elite, the activist elite, were at the foundation of the early letters. Even in the Stalin period and Beria period when participation in collective action was brutally repressed, we saw um, as early as in, even 1921 um, expressions of um, Abhaz elite through these Abhaz letters. Because of course from 1931 what we see is that the the is that Abhazia is being um, kind of locked in this double tier mechanism of appeal with Moscow being the arbiter of relations between the republics um, and, and, and their autonomous parts. And with the Georgian layer quite often bypassed because of the belief that there wouldn't be a response there. So most often these letters went to Moscow. Not always, but most often. And what we see over time also is that these letters at first um, call in question um, certain kind of um, ways in which the has perceived having been repressed, but also as it related to other undercurrents, other historical processes. So for instance, in the 50s and the 60s, what we see is that the discussion in the letters is organized around a response to Ingaroqva's uh, infamous theory. Later in the in the 60s, so that's in the 50s, in the 60s the revival of that theory is how the Apas kind of enter the conversation. But behind the kind of the, the, the trigger uh, of, of uh, theories of who belongs to of or the origins of Abhazia there's kind of the discussion of all of these other issues that we had already raised, you know, the, the revert of the status, the, even the, we didn't really discuss the Menshevik Georgia's period, the 1918 period, but we can we can turn to that if you'd like. But also, more importantly, you know, repression of the Abhaz intelligentsia, mass Georgian resettlement, language, school toponymy reforms, falsification of history, kind of under underrepresentation of the Abhaz cadres, et cetera, et cetera. So, in a way, the Soviet structure. Shaped what was how the entry, what kinds of entry points were possible into the conversation, and things like Ingarakos theory were those entry points. But behind those entry points, a lot of other issues were brought up. To the extent that, of course, in the seventies we see the first really claims to integrate Abkhazia into Russia, given what the Abkhaz perceived as this history of Georgianization, and by the eighties we see this kind of claim of. No, even that won't do. We need to revert to the Soviet Socialist Republic status. So, these letters give us a, a really important political story, also, of what's going on while people are having these instances of everyday confrontation, because those things are not disconnected. Many people were really informed about what was going on, those letters, because of the kind of the way in which they were shared. And of course, we also see that the national movement or unity, emerges on these foundations. So first, we have a strong kind of student movement in the 60s and 70s, built up on the basis of the public gatherings that supported some of the letters that were re- written there. So we have student discussions, uh, because again, because of the opening in the 60s and the Soviet system. So these kind of structural elements and local elements, of course, they interact. Um, and so on the back of that we have Um, kind of a core of the members of different organizations, student organizations who kind of interact with each other, coordinate um, to to notify each other if there's a public gathering, if there's another letter um, with these core of activists, then um, some of whom formed this national forum of Abkhazia, which became really truly an umbrella organization in the 80s. There was again as a response to the open further opening in the soviet system and to nationalist mobilizations that started taking place um, across the soviet um, uh, republics and so what you see is that this national forum of Abkhazia, is actually quite quite vocally um uh related to this kind of request to revise the provisions for the withdrawal of the app autonomous Soviet socialist Republic from the Georgian Soviet socialist Republic. And it becomes kind of an organizing principle and an organizing set of nodes, you know, in, in, in and, and networks that um, kind of propel further, further mobilization in Apathia. So once again, I, I'm kind of intertwining the everyday with the organized, with the political, because I believe that they cannot really be detached. So more and more what we see in the 80s is that people start participating in events uh, of the Abhas movement even not as members, just by virtue of living in Abhazia and being there, by virtue of finding out that there will be another instance of mobilization, um, such as, of course, the Lichni gathering of 1989, which, once again, why I started with Abhaz letters is because of the sheer importance of that mechanism for voicing the Abkhaz consor- concerns over this history. And, of course, the APAS national movement, AYIB specifically that organization, the movement was fragmented. So there was the core and there were other organizations um, which sometimes acted in different ways. And there were splits in terms of whether to use violence, whether not to use violent tactics. And so this kind of background story, I think, is also important. But what we see despite those um, fragmentations and, you know, conflicts within the movement, is this sheer coming together of uh, you know over thirty thousand people gathered at Lichne to kind of support the letter that was then sent um, to to the Soviet center to request this kind of restoration of the Abha status where not only um, regular participants in the event, so members of the organization, but also those even Abhas and uh, members of other minorities in Abhasia who were part of the Soviet apparatus, they were present as well. So it was kind of, it was a critical, of course, event, um, which then leads us to Violent opposition. So I've spoken about everyday confrontation, which is really important for context because, on an everyday level, things were happening. This political contention in the form of Abhaz letters, in the form of the Abhaz national movement, and now violent opposition. Why am I separating these out? Is because in political science literature in particular, we know that particularly participation in intergroup violence really creates polarization within even intertwined but originally kind of divided societies. So that was very important. So in a way, this violent opposition that we observe in the, in the late 1980s is um is a is a a clear kind of moment of transition toward a split in the society because you know we originally start from the understanding that people are friends the society is integrated everyone is reflected in various organizational settings so what happens then well i argue that it's not just 1989 that happens as we discussed there's a lot other uh, activity going on but 1989 of course creates this polarization and militarization of society and it's really important to emphasize that there are parallel processes going on here the processes of georgian nationalist mobilization that are aimed particularly at georgian independence but also engaging with questions such as the abha status etc which In parallel, take place with the APAS attempts to kind of separate from Georgia to become a socialist. Uh, Soviet Socialist Republic at that time. So we need to see that also in the, not only kind of internal Abhas context, but also in in terms of what's happening in Georgia. And of course, in Georgia, we have the formation of various societies, Chavchavadze society, for instance, we have quite a um, a strong um, uh, emergence of various slogans that kind of cement identities in in, um, quite serious ways, you know, suggesting that Georgia is for Georgians with, with, of course, Gansa famous, famous, infamous uh, slogan. So we need to understand these processes in parallel, I find um but we also need to kind of move away from these kind of linear stories of escalation because that's not exactly what happened right it's not like the war started right after the 1989 clashes that's not at all what happened and when i see the uh, like the dominant the typical escalation stories i i ask for a pause because what we see in that moment of course, the very logic of 1989 is interesting in its own right because with um, various events going on in Georgia, particularly the tragedy of April 9th uh, in Georgia, and kind of celebration of Georgian Independence Day later down the road on May 26. It is in that context that we see also the starts the starting seeds of kind of the split within the society, which which begin within the university. And it is within the kind of university setting that the moment of the July 1989 clashes uh, kind of originates from. So what we know is that um, tensions kind of rise over these parallel mobilizations that are happening. But also, the the specific trigger within Abhazia is this proposal to create a branch of Tbilisi State University in Tuhumy. And this is where the Abhaz national movement, the existence already of an organized structure, is critical. Because not only was this movement essential to um, kind of the calls to not split the society, to uh, kind of not create this Tbilisi State University branch to kind of maintain the political character of, of the um, uh, figuring out of this issue of status. But also it is within the Aid Karlara movement that those who then kind of block the entry exams so, so in the end, to cut the story short, the Tbilisi State University branch went back and forth between, um, you know, public rejection to then still nonetheless, um, the ability uh, of, of kind of the, the Georgian part of the university to launch entry exams. So where the violence starts is in that setting, where, um, a range of kind of Eidglera members, core activists, uh, kind of block the building of the entry exams. And then when the entry exams continue, uh, kind of enter that building from which point because of the organizational structure that was created it was relatively easy to kind of share the news of what was happening so once these kinds of uh events within the school where the entry exams was were hap- were, were taking place started at the same time there were kind of gatherings on the back of all the tensions that i described uh, in places like rustavelli park uh, or basically over an attack um, on an abhas cameraman so there are these kind of spontaneous almost systematic triggers like the blocking of the entry exams and spontaneous triggers where then a wall-on-wall clash kind of emerges so we don't need to go too far into the the history of what happens next but what we know is that had the soviet troops not intervened at that time we could have seen potentially further escalation of of those clashes into potentially sustained armed confrontation even but at the time this was not the case because the soviet troops still existed and still had a contingent and kind of um suppressed the, the violence that could have unfolded thereafter. so usually what we see in the literature is that the story stops there and then the war happens. <laughs> and then you know in between there's referendums on both sides, the Georgian referendum blocked by the Abhas, the Abhas referendum blocked by the Georgians. yeah, but it's that's not entirely the case either. So it's really important to mention, I think that mobilization continues just on a on a Different in a different way. So, what we see after those clashes is that on the Abhas side, um, because the prosecution of those who participated in the clashes was perceived to be illegitimate, being led by those who had an interest in in the stakes of the pro- in in the in the problem, there is an Abhas general strike, which further unites the Abhas society in a way. So in a general strike, the key demand was to kind of defend the, the leaders and regular participants in the clashes by kind of asking for a formation of the Soviet Commission to investigate the July events, right? But this strike was important for other reasons. Um, it is there where you saw, okay, Aid Galera united us because of playing such an important role in kind of communicating that we should have a collective action over this, otherwise our own will be persecuted unfairly potentially. And so with this kind of strike uh, uniting a large proportion of the APAS population, you see kind of this um, collective shared understandings of, of conflict cementing even further and the division between let's say non-Georgian but particularly Abkhaz uh, participants of the movement, those who were members and those who were not and the Georgian population. So what we see is a gradual transition of these friendships where in 1989, we of course move into a situation where teams split friendships start splitting so what i heard over and over and over again in various workplaces in 1989 our team split georgian colleagues started coming on such and such day we started coming to work on another day to make sure we don't cross paths because otherwise the tensions were too high and this is reflected not only in everyday workplaces but also in in you know university in the government etc so the society splits, but it doesn't split overnight because of 1989. There's a lot of undercurrents uh, that are shorter that that short of violence. So everyday confrontation, political contention that are important to keep in mind in this regard. What is fascinating here is that despite the formation of the Mahedrioni and kind of introduction of the Mahedrioni, for instance, the Horsemen, the the Georgian paramilitary organization in Abkhazia, and also the formation of the Abkhaz Guard, which was very important, and I actually kind of recruited participants into, into that armed structure. Despite that, there is surprisingly little confrontation, violent opposition, over the period of 1989, 1992. So there are clashes here and there, but they are mainly kind of everyday clashes. So we don't see this kind of typical story of escalation of violence in nature scale and intensity. What we see is a period of lull. And this was, I think, important for me to understand, to kind of figure out why is it that the Abbas really were surprised. I mean, how could you possibly be surprised if you had been engaged in decades of mobilization? But because of that period of lull and because of the kind of reorganization, this normalization of the split, of the polarization that happened after 1989, the kind of life going back almost to normal, just under different conditions, indeed on august 14th people were making jams they were having kebab with family it was actually a weekend they were at the beach there were plenty of tourists so so they indeed were really really shocked by by what was going on
0: so what do you make of the claims and the assertions that the Abkhaz mobilization is merely an extension of russian influence or russian power or Russian military presence. You know, how do you conceptualize of this Abkhaz-Russian relationship uh, in the context of the war?
1: The Russian support was unclear at the war's onset, and it was divided between Georgia and Abkhazia, because of course, Russia was in turmoil at the time. It was split internally. What even is, quote unquote, Russia at the time, right? And within Russia, within various segments of the Russian security apparatus, the government, there were significant worries about its own separatism in Chechnya. So in a way, many individuals in positions of power in Russia wouldn't want to support separatism across the post-Soviet states. So um, during the war, of course, Chechen support for the Abhas Further complicated Russia's engagement on the Abkhaz side for those same reasons. So even Russian personnel in Abkhazia was split. You remember how I started? I started by talking about this variation and how some people managed, some Abkhaz managed to get weapons at the Gudauta military base. So let me give some context. Of course, that base existed uh, after the split um, of the Soviet Union. But, so what happened there is basically the Abhas Guard that I mentioned was created on the basis of the 8th Regiment of the Soviet Army, where uh, former officers, former Soviet officers who were part of that regiment were invited to stay. And some of them did and some of them didn't. So the contingent was mainly Abhas. So... The Gudauta stories, the Gudauta military base stories, slightly different. The because of the presence of weapons, there was Russian personnel there, uh, represented. So some of this personnel, they offered the Abhas weapons just like that. Others, because of maybe friendships, family relationships, others sold them because we know that wars create opportunities for profiteering in all kinds of ways. But actually, others rejected access. So there was a lot going on there. Again, it's not a black and white story. Um, And of course, we need to also think about what happened later. Uh, Russia's economic blockade and exclusion of the Abhas from the negotiation table after the war should also be considered in this light. This is not to say that the Russian influence during the war and the foreign fighter influence, actually, it's important to note here that Ayedgulera actively created links with uh through the mountains people's assembly uh etc for the foreign fighters to then join from from the from other areas in the caucasus so those influences during the war were very important they mattered in the Abas case by raising the appas spirit well where when all else seemed lost because of course appas had awful battles and this we just have reflected statistically they they didn't win all the battles had the russian support and the foreign fighters did all the work you know there wouldn't have been lost battles on the upper side and yet there were a lot but most importantly for me because of course i'm interested in the moment of mobilization at the onset of the war that support was not present and it's really uh Interesting how people talked even about that. So I mentioned that um, you know the when the Georgian forces entered abhazia through Inguri through the Georgian Abkhaz administrative border on August 14th and then kind of encircled Abkhazia on August 14th from the sea. So in that moment, people who didn't believe that it was a war actually spoke about. Russia in, in a very particular way, as if in the past. So they, they said, well, many r- respondents who thought that this advance was actually an intergroup clash and not a war, they said, oh, we just hoped for some protection from the disintegrating Soviet troops, like in 1989. Sometimes no, this, this was co- confusing to me in a way because of course those Soviet troops no longer existed. And they indeed did not come at the time. So uh, this was the main direct consideration for the Abhas during the first days before Georgia established control. And of course the other consideration was that Russia provided an escape route. So at at first there weren't block posts and at first sometimes you could still get through and escape to Russia, uh, particularly from Western abhazia so that was another consideration but in the context of sheer shock and confusion beyond that people were simply trying to understand what in the world is going on they weren't they weren't working with this cost benefit calculation of oh yes russia is there therefore i shouldn't mobilize and in that case why would we even see so many abhaz mobilizing so what i think is that the last decades of scholarship that views Russia or the, as the main or even the only explanatory factor in post-Soviet conflicts has actually done some damage in skewing our perspective on these conflicts to the extent that we forget what people living through these conflicts actually experienced. And what the app has experienced when the war broke out was this kind of shock and confusion that we discussed. And, of course, the kind of... Um, discussions that followed were not a calculation of costs and benefits with Russia quote-unquote as a variable you know that we could just insert into a statistical analysis but an attempt to understand what was going on and and when they did understand what to do collectively in response and I'm more than happy to turn to you know kind of how I came to understand this process of underst of of, of you know of coming to a, a realization that this was a war but I think i'll I'll end here on the local bit and on the russia side
2: you know actually a lot of the stories as well that I was translating uh, Russia is looked upon as a peacemaker um they, they think like either they either they try to stifle the violence or they just don't do anything at all you know they at least they don't like help out the Ossetians or the Georgians they just sort of don't do anything very few were like saying that Russians made it worse so I was also shocked by that I think because like this idea I remember like years and years ago when I had heard the peacekeepers were Russians in these areas I was like oh that's like telling the fox to, you know guard the hen house right and because that was the sort of the narrative i was being i also grew up in the u.s and that was sort of the narrative i was being told as well um like how u.n is this like ridiculous formation because it gives russians peace peacekeeper status in these areas where supposedly russians were the violent ones that were actually you know at fault for all these things
1: yeah so There is a very complicated story there as well, and I won't go into too much of a detail, but um, I think that in Abhazia also Russia is not perceived as a black and white force, of course. what is important i think for us yes it is it is highly problematic uh, that russian peacekeepers are present in in those areas but that's a whole other story if we were to turn to the perceptions of russia on the one hand so let me just you know we kind of spoke about the the period of the war a little bit where you know even if Russia were part of the calculation, quote-unquote, of some people, which I don't believe it was, I saw a different thing going on systematically, then why would people make such different decisions? I mean, that's just, you know, basically, in terms of social science, that just doesn't work. Um, but later down the road, okay, let's accept the fact that there were Russian peacekeepers there. They, they did, um, for instance, uh, especially at first, uh, kind of not allow the Abhaz army to be in the 12-kilometer zone that was set up along the Georgian Abhaz administrative border after the war, because, of course, that would incite further violence. But at the same time, they often fell, kind of, the peacekeepers themselves were targeted by, for instance, the kind of the Georgian groups that perpetrated Abhazia and, and targeted in ways that that created casualties. So there's more going on there um, from from all sides but like, turning to the app has perspectives yes of course the fact that um Rush, the the russian imposed the the um commonwealth of independent state imposed economic blockade it was seen as a major kind of I wouldn't say violation because it was even greater than that. The economic blockade, of course, completely changed gender relations in Abkhazia with men unable to uh, cross the border to Russia or and trade and and women kind of trading instead. It is seen as, as a kind of a decision that clearly communicated Russian stance toward the Abhas at the time with, you know, economic blockade clearly isolating Abhasia and then inability of the Abhas side to be at the negotiations table was another kind of blow in that regard. So once again, it's not so clear cut. So there is a lot of hurt there as well in the sense that, you know, the economic blockade that happens after a war, which already drains the society that was really a difficult piece of news for the app has to process but of course later down the road the situation happens uh, the situation changes especially with kind of ways in which um, it, it, it is more and more understood that the app has almost could use the relations between russia and georgia to continue their national project. And I'm here speaking about 2008, of course. So by that time, there's also the story that Russia did everything with regard to Abkhazia in 2008. But on the ground, yes, of course, given the training by Russia, given armaments by Russia, it was the Abkhaz soldiers, mainly fighters, uh, or call them whatever you like in the context of the de facto security apparatus, who were, Uh, running the operation, who were kind of on the ground in the operation in the Kodori Gorge. So as almost the South Ossetia situation happens, this kind of created an opportunity for for the Abhas to kind of take back, quote-unquote, what they considered to be historically Abhas land, namely the the Kodori uh, Gorge. So... The the kind of the perception of Russia shifts over time from this kind of set of almost lack of clarity of if, if you are on our side, why impose an economic blockade? Why not let us to the negotiation table to, okay this is an opportunity and we are being trained by this particular force. We are being supplied by this particular force on its back. We can continue our national project to then, of course, an immense moment of the recognition of Abhazia by Russia. This is the moment that respondents have kind of considered as the closing of the circle, the culmination of the Apaz national movement. That recognition by Russia also turned these earlier perceptions of Russia on on their back. And of course, what we see thereafter is kind of a, a really complicated dance between understanding that Russian patronage is clearly key for the survival of the Abkhaz de facto state, but also attempting to maintain some level of political participation, um, competition within Abkhazia. So we have a situation in which, you know, electoral politics then um, really uh, kind of explodes in Abkhazia with a lot of internal competition that does not necessarily relate to either russia or georgia but of course where both um kind of presences are there uh where there are attempts to kind of also distance at least formally from russia to suggest that we are an independent kind of territory to the best of 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 our ability so Again, what we what I'm suggesting here is that the story is not just straightforward. It's not exactly you know black and white, and and that is very important, I think, because without kind of this context, without digging deeper, we can't really understand some of the decisions that people are making, including in electoral politics in Azerbaijan.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, you know, it's interesting how you mentioned that this 2008 war. Uh, becomes something which these outside observers or even people in in the region will then look at as sort of um, giving um, evidence to, you know, claims about the past. Um, And I just think that, you know, this is something that we constantly see in this part of the world in terms of, well, the Soviet Union collapsed, therefore the Soviet Union was X, Y, and Z. Or you know this um, uh, in the same way you could say that in the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh the conflict um, there is a pogrom against Armenians and therefore the Azeris are perpetuating the same genocide that happened against Armenians during the Ottoman Empire as opposed to necessarily situating um, you know these events um, in a in a more like proper uh, historical context. Um, And I think that in terms of what we've been trying to do with our project, we see this happening with the Soviet past all the time. And it kind of leads me to a question um, to just go back to a question about the Soviet story um, in regards to Abkhazia and Georgia um, that I wanted to ask you earlier was, you know, today there seems to be a particular kind of uh, narrative that wants to Argue that the ethnic conflicts in the South Caucasus, and in particular the Georgian Abkhaz tensions, is a direct result of Soviet nationalities policies. And what's interesting is that you mentioned something earlier that there use this phrase that I really liked. I think you said entry points, right? Like there are certain entry points that are created, but those entry points don't necessarily um, explain every single dynamic or explain, for example, the way that um, people were actually living a cosmopolitan and interrelated life during this time. But what I see now is that especially, um, you know, just to be frank, like nationalist historians who are trying to justify a kind of nationalism within this, you know, uh, European Western framework. So they're basically using a kind of anti anti-soviet narrative to try to justify a western western uh, integration while at the same time maintaining a national position that predates the soviet union right but they're saying that no 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 it was the soviet union that actually exacerbated the ethnic conflict by ethnic by providing this you know Uh, ethnic administrations or, uh, you know, providing a kind of like uh, institutions for various ethnicities. But then, of course, when you examine it, the story is a little bit more complex. And I'm just curious, you know, what do you think about that uh, explanation?
1: Yeah, I think that we cannot take the Soviet Union out of the equation. It provided a structure within which things happened. But, of course, We cannot just focus on that structure only because as we saw, there are so many layers to what people were doing and experiencing within that structure. And had we only focused on the structural explanation, then we would probably miss all of those moments of everyday resistance to nationality policies through friendships and family building, through neighborly solidarity, through cosmopolitan organizational settings. We would also miss um, the kind of the very shaping of the stories that different Groups told about their identity. Those stories aren't prepackaged and pre made. They evolved over time. And I hope that that's something that I demonstrate in the book also. You you do not have a prepackaged story of, of Abha's nationalism. I don't go into uh, detail on the Georgian nationalism. Of course, it's not within the scope of this work, but the same, absolutely the same applies. And it is this construction. Um, that that you discussed also with Professor Suni in one of your podcasts of of different nationalisms and competing nationalisms. Why I mentioned, for instance, the fragmentation within the APAS movement is to make sure that we don't also narrowed down that story and simplified where there were competing views of what needed to be done, what reparatories needed to be undertaken. And that view just did not come with a prepackaged independent aphasia whatever that might mean, quote, unquote, um, in it, it evolved over time. And I think that more so, we can't really get at that story only by looking at these public expressions of nationalism. That is why I always start with every day, with the everyday confrontation which tells us a much more interesting story of how people actually lived and how they navigated this challenging terrain and how many people were heartbroken actually that their friendships fell apart when those taboo questions could no longer be contained.